Hello, you're listening to the Consequential Podcast. With me today, only Roger. Sorry. We're going to talk about Daredevil. Hurrah. And only Daredevil in this amazing Daredevil-themed podcast. All Daredevil. Daredevil. All the time. Yes. We're doing an experiment. Because we're wretched media tarts and it's on the telly. Because we're wretched media tarts and it's on the telly. And, and when you asked me about some of the comics, it turned out that I've probably read more Daredevil than any other superhero comic. Oh god, it's your horrifying X-Men millstone. Yeah, it's like 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 you are for 90s pouchy X-Men. <laughs> I am for Daredevil. Oh my god, I've just realised. You've read how... all of Age of Apocalypse? No, 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 well, worse than that. I've just realised how similar a lot of the displays are in some of the underwear shops I like in Soho to a lot of Rob Liefeld's over. Do they cut the mannequins off at the ankle? Just, just a little, it's, it's pouchy. Like combat pants. Like you could fill your pants with shuriken. I'm sure some people Consequential do. Consequential Podcast does not recommend filling your pants with shuriken. Unless you're really into that. Place no, it. not if you're really into that. Unless you've had your tetanus shots and you get a good two layers of tinfoil around your junk to just counteract any scraping you're going to get from yeah, general movement. True. You want to stay away. Thing, sure things that you don't want to be subject to wear and tear should include your genitals. Oh, I got some... You know the funny ones I was talking about that were just the weird little cup? I got some of those. They're actually surprisingly comfortable. Pants, not yeah. damaged genitalia. Yeah. Pants. But also, very Rob Liefeld. I you know, look like I should be, like, mounted on someone's knee or something. It's, it's, uh, it's very pouchy. But... For your cock, so we're clear. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not for ammunition or whatever they've got in there in a Rob Liefeld cartoon. It's 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 it's, it's the cock and balls. The whole the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah. The cock and balls. So let's assume, rather than wanting to hear about the myriad ways you have to contain your genitals, uh, that that people have have watched. The Daredevil television show on, on the Netflix. On the Netflix? Yes, yes. It's the future telly. Shut the fuck up. I knew you were going to do that. I knew you were going to do that. The moment I said it, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> oh, you weakened me. I'll thought you good. I'll thought you so good. So some people who've watched it might be thinking, gosh, I want to, I want to get into some of that in the old comics. So we're here really to guide you into uh, into some of the best comics, try and navigate continuity a little bit, and and basically give you give you an idea of what to read, Bendis, um, if you want to get into Daredevil. So let's just check my understanding here. So as I as I gather it, there are um, four main eras of Daredevil. Yeah. Blam, kapow, bright colours. Stanley. Oh god no, oh god no, oh god no. Frank Miller. Way! Quite interesting, bit gritty, quite functional, quite modern. Mm, you can kind of ignore the 90s, but yeah, Bendis. And today, some shit happens. Uh, yeah, there have been various people who've sort of written it since Bendis with various degrees of success. Ed Brubaker did a fairly long run, which was good, because Ed Brubaker writing slightly pulpy crime stuff. We know he's all over that. Um, uh, Mark Wade has done a fairly long run recently with Chris Samney and some other artists, which again, quite different, much lighter in tone. 
I, I read a single in one of the trades you let me for that. I didn't have time to finish the whole thing. Um, I like that. And then whoever takes over after the current crossover event that I couldn't give a shit about, which mm. is Secret Wars. Um, but this is one of the reasons that Daredevil's you know enjoyable what? to me. Go on. I reckon Sysbury would do it really well. Dude's got an ear for smart pulp. This is true. This is true. He probably would. So I am... Um, it's, it's, it's something that tends to be played straight, and I think it would be quite hard to put the meta layer that Sysbury tends to need. It is played mm. quite straight, isn't it? It's, yeah. I, so I, I read the, um, the opening sequence of some of the Bender stuff, the um, Bender's Mac, uh, Wake Up. Wake Up. And although that's a little bit postmodern, it's still quite straight. It's not jokey. Yeah. Uh, Bendis, Bendis said that anyone can write Daredevil as long as you remember it's pulp. Mm-hmm. And even though his stuff can be quite tangential and take a very different view of the character or the environment that the character mm-hmm. lives in, it's still pulp. Um, and I think that is broadly true. Yeah. Now, something I found quite interesting about the um, adaptation, the, uh, the Netflix version, is actually you, you may disagree. It felt to me it felt less pulpy than Arrow, which is the other obvious touchstone. In terms of gritty urban crime drama that has superheroes. Yeah, recent adaptation. So it's got quite a, it's got a few similar plot elements, and it does this thing that um, they, they both like, Daredevil did it a lot more, but making the day job identity as interesting, if not more interesting, than the crime fighter identity. Just a few sort of tonal shifts and bits of implementation. The kind of a certain style of focus that they both had seemed quite similar. Their approaches to solving this problem of getting a superhero onto screen in a plausible way in modern drama land. There's there's that book. Um, I keep meaning to read it. Warren Ellis was talking about it in his newsletter about the genesis of what some people call the golden age of TV, but sort of modern heavy drama, the sort of Goodfellas yeah. West Wing stuff. Um, what I and the, then the later genre stuff that's come off that, which might be, I guess, its second era, but the like swanky HBO stuff plus serious high production values drama. Yeah. In in a TV culture that is all up in that business at the moment, how do you circumnavigate the spandex and get something that has? all of the poppy cultural affordance of superhero stuff onto the screen in a world that's just not going to accept fucking New Adventures of Superman or whatever it was called from the 90s. Lois and Clark, The Lois Lois Adventures of Superman. Um, So I think it helps that a lot of the recent stuff has been written by people with that in mind. I mean, Bendis, I think the two touchstones that people give for Bendis are not comic book writers, but usually David Mamet mm. um, and Aaron Sorkin um, with the sort of very, very dialogue-heavy, um, quite quippy approach to writing characters. You lose a lot of panel real estate to speech bubbles in Bendis. You do. Um, which it's I not guess as bad just... in Daredevil as it was in his Ultimate Spider-Man mm. stuff. Well, his Ultimate Spider-Man stuff was great. Um, and... I'm just going to be unkind here. The art was good, but style, deliberately well-executedly simplistic enough that that wasn't a distraction or a problem. 
they were they were much more action comics. The Daredevil stuff is murky and and strange. It is, and you've got lots of flat kind of a flat color space in those panels that you can put some speech bubbles on without really losing much. So we're sort of talking primarily about the stuff that he's done um, with David Mack, who has done he he. If you're not familiar with him, does big sort of multi-layered, multi-textured art pieces effectively very similar to Dave McKean's uh, Sandman covers it's like Dave McKean's Sandman covers via uh, Jock's work on witches dialed down to the point where you can actually get a whole, get an issue out of it without it taking a year to put together um, and the other one is uh, Alex Malev, Malev, Malev Alex Malev yeah who um, has a style quite angular but Occasionally, almost photorealistic in places, but which I love, and I know you don't. No, I really came around to it in reading these comics, like skimming through them at the time, because these were ten years old now. Um, at the time, I rejected it entirely. I just didn't get it. What I like about it is the absolute pull of focus onto high detail to the expense of it, so the backgrounds can just go hang quite often. Or like, if it's about if there's a, a city shot, then all. What is distinct and what is indistinct changes semantically with the focus. Yes. I've got so much time for that. Yeah. One of the really... One of the weird details I kept picking up in the um, the arc about sort of the death of the kingpin, as it were, um, is sort of... It repeatedly calls out with these big asymmetric panels a poster of a 1930s Berlin art show. Mm. And I have absolutely no idea why, but it keeps repeatedly Which going show? back to it. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head. I just wonder if it's one of the famous ones. And therefore, if there's anything interesting and semantic going on there. Uh, it just said art show in German. Oh, fine. Um, so it wasn't like one of the Bauhaus exhibitions or the Deviant no, 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 no. Art thing or one of the ones before that, one of the pre... Like one of the late Weimar... No, no, no. It just said, uh, like, 19, 1933 Berliner Kunstschau. Oh, fine, fine. Kunstschau. Not careful with that one. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, you had a thing. Uh, no, I, I, I was waffling, and then it occurred to me that we'd drifted a little bit um, into what is good and interesting about some of these bits, but... Do you want to give a bit of a, a bit of background, or? Yeah, I think it's worth um, it's worth doing because I think the the show, um, if it was your first exposure to the character, which it was for me, it it feels like it's all there. It's um, it, it does feel very it's old. a very very obvious origin story, and everything sort of falls into place. So my my questions when. I think I, I think I actually asked you both of these questions when I started watching it were this doesn't feel like the kingpin from Spider-Man is he always like this in Daredevil yeah. and is that the origin story it makes a lot of sense for Marvel yeah so Daredevil is one of those comics where stuff has been layered on and layered on until you've got a kind of overall sense of how it all fits together um, but so Spider-Man's super clean, it makes sense, it's easy yeah, to explain. he's bitten by a spider, he doesn't like the Green Goblin. Yeah, in, Dead, in Daredevil, okay, he's blind, he goes blind saving someone, there's some family shit, fair enough, that's probably a fixed point, but 
to what extent it's magic, to what extent it's training, to what extent it's what. I, I, yeah, I just kind of like, I wasn't sure how revisionist they were being. The 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 show sidesteps it, but in the comics it's got a fairly sci-fi answer. It's uh, enhanced senses from concentrating and training, plus radioactivity from the gunk that fell out of the lorry. So Yay. basically, you start with you start with the Stan Lee version, which is that. Wouldn't it be great if there was a blind superhero and also he was a lawyer because justice is blind? Yes. Go for it. And you know what? It's so on the nose, I have, I'll take it. Especially yeah, because it goes a, so hard to pulp. Bit of a slow clap, but... So originally it didn't. Originally it was very, very much um, one of those comics that they referred to as the Long Underwear Brigade. Mm. Um, and it was bright and it was colourful and he fought characters like Stiltman and Leapfrog... Oh yeah, yeah, and and basically just, just the extraordinary stupidity of some of that Silver yeah. Age stuff. Yeah, and then um, uh, Gladiator, who was who sort of sort of appeared in the TV show as um, Melvin Potter, the costume designer, mm. who was uh, kind of I don't know. He seemed like they were doing Lenny from Mice and Men, but he was a yeah, costume designer. I couldn't work out whether that was. Good, creepy, bad, patronizing. I, just, I had problems with that. It felt so. I think it sort of started out feeling creepy, and then it just sort of felt like he was being exploited. And which, but the level was, of explanation wasn't good. Which was kind of part of the point in the yeah, he's being exploited by the kingpin. He's being exploited by Matt, and he's yeah. Yes. So originally, you have a 1960s colorful comic, and then in 1979, it was basically about to be cancelled. Um, and they gave it to Frank Miller, who was then um, an up-and-coming uh, young writer. Still crazy, not as crazy. Yeah, not as crazy. And Frank Miller turned it into this um, gritty uh, crime series, very, very much street-level set around. It's Frank Miller, there are a lot of prostitutes in it. And he and Klaus Janssen sort of re- redefined it as... It's very tightly in Hell's Kitchen. It's dark. It's always at night. It's very oh, so, much... so that comes from there? Yeah. A lot of it comes from there. So I, I very much like that about the the show. And I like that about the Bendis run. And I wasn't sure how fundamental it was. But the, the spatial containment, this idea that he just really gives a shit about this, this little bit of the area. world. Yeah. Well, it's where he grew up. So you've got the sort of hyper-locality of that. It did make me really wonder what the, like, the minimum viable superhero density would be. So, anyway, that's, uh... so um, yeah, the, uh, it, it had been Hell's Kitchen before, but it got highlighted, and obviously Hell's Kitchen of the 1970s and 1980s was a pretty terrible place. Um, Is it? I'm guessing, I don't know, I haven't looked this up, I'm guessing it's now gentrified up the wazoo. Uh, it got pretty... It, it got pretty... Um, gentrified under Rudy Giuliani as mayor of New York. So what, it's now like, referred to as Clinton generally, rather than Hell's Kitchen. Um, and it's so sort of Shoreditch. Probably crime's way down. It's not filled with gangs anymore. Mm. It doesn't look like the Warriors. Mm. Um, so that 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 was sort of really expanded on, turning it into a sort of dark crime drama. Was Miller. Mm. Bringing in the kingpin as the main adversary was Miller, and a lot of that was. That's such. It's bigger. such a good fit. It's so obvious when you think about it, but having, you know, having the sort of cheap ass impact, but impassioned and, and virtuous lawyer versus the ultimate kingpin of crime is is a very obvious fit. But it was a borrowed Spider-Man villain, and I think it's just 
much more associated with Daredevil well, now, but it's just one of those things that had to be put together later. Again, Kingpin, he's a bit straight up for Spider-Man. But yeah, Spider-Man well, you know, he used to have a cane that shot laser beams out. Mm. And but you just get more goofball out of the box with, with Spider-Man. You do, but you also, in Kingpin, get a character that's completely resistant to that, who hates mm. that, doesn't react, and is also that quite stoic presence until he completely flips. Yeah. Well, the TV version of Owlsley would have played that quite nicely. Yeah. The, not the dude with the claws. Yeah, which is a, another big difference. So you have you have Frank Miller turning it into this dark crime drama, and he I he was on the dark crime drama with genuinely upsettingly bad gender politics. Oh yeah, yeah. So Karen Page in Miller's run, without wanting to give too much away, it was twenty years ago. You're allowed to talk about it. Gets onto heroin. Yay. Gets HIV. Yay. Is a complete victim. Uh, um, God, Frank. And then Frank, what's wrong with you, so, Frank? So he was on it for a long time. There's a lot wrong with Frank. Um, there's a lot wrong with Frank, and we'll probably get onto that later. But in 1993, they did a sort of they did um, a five comic one-off sort of out of continuity shot or mm. overall continuity shot called Daredevil: The Man Without Fear, mm. um, which sort of went from Matt's I childhood. I was 11. I was I was 12. I'm older than you. Um, yeah, which sort of went from his childhood through to modern day with all of the sort of... with everything retroactively applied, mm. essentially. So in his run, Miller had brought, had brought in Matt being a ninja. He'd brought in Stick mm. having trained him. You know, the sort of wise old man who's an arsehole. Um, it's a grotty trope, but I like it. At least he's not, uh, you know, he the, the, making him basically a bum from New York avoids a lot of the Orientalism that mm. Miller shoehorns in elsewhere. So this is something that if they continue the TV show, I think I'm going to massively prefer to the mainstream continuity, which is I get the feeling the TV show will be resistant to making the ninjas magic. Probably. And I really don't like a magic ninja. There's a lot of stuff from, well, they're, they're quite often magic undead ninjas. Yeah, I'm not... No one likes a magic undead ninja. No. No, they do not. Um, so that's sort, of, that's sort of your basic story. But it's one of those things where every writer who's come onto it has reinvented it in their own way. Hmm. So Bendis' run was very, very dark. Miller's run was very, very dark in a different way. And full of drugs and prostitutes of, because he's a flailing old man and terrified of everything. I kind of don't want to call the Bendis stuff dark because dark is now so inflected with it's but shit. It's, it's not that. Um, it's it's not that, but grim and pouting. Yeah, and no one's particularly happy, and it's got this kind of weird inversion of. So I, I loves me a good in Media Ray's beginning. And what the Bender stuff has is the interesting flip of that, which is that almost everything, or pretty much everything in the bits that I read are post-factor. Everything's recounted and therefore filtered through a perception. There's a lot of that, and there is some, there is some of it that happens live, but there's, there's a lot of framing devices. So obviously Wake Up, which is, for, for a mainstream 
superhero comic, Fuck kind hell. of virtuoso. Um, starts with essentially Ben Urich, who is a, a newspaper reporter, trying to break through a almost non-verbal traumatized child who knows something about Daredevil, hmm. which has been spooked. Um, he thinks that, you know, Daredevil's gone and done something horrible or something, something's gone badly wrong and he's essentially trying to break through to this child. For five issues, it's a man yep. talking to a child. And the, it's, it's not wildly dissimilar to stuff in Decalog and it's not wildly dissimilar to some of the later stuff in the Bendis run. And there's this recurring theme... That, well, sorry, we, we'll come back to Wake Up in a second. There, there is, there is this, this massive recurring theme of Daredevil appears briefly... And does something, and that's the action. But the world we live in, and the world we are told about, is the lead-up to, and the during, but also very much the consequences of the action, as filtered through the perceptions and trauma of the people whose lives it is. And yeah, I know that's a slightly hackneyed thing now, maybe, but it's a really lovely approach to... Well, fuck it, it was hackneyed at the time, arguably. Like, Watchmen does some of this, what about superheroes in a real world? That kind of pressure on reality as a way of stripping the long underwear out of a superhero story whilst also getting to keep that cake. It's a very good way of doing it. So the two stories I, I sort of gave to you were Wake Up and Decalogue, and they're sort of five years apart in real time. And the stuff hanging off Wake Up, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and Decalogue is framed around a support group for people who have had interactions with Daredevil and feel you know, uncomfortable or their lives have been changed as a result. And it's got a couple of structuring devices. It's got the the issues are named after five of the Ten Commandments. Mm. It's a support group, so they're telling they're in, they're nested and ultimately interconnected stories. So there's a little bit of your kind of Decameron kind of you know. I, I, what's, is there a, stories told around the campfire? Is there a term for that kind of structural compendium thing where you? You have a story about people telling stories and they invariably they tend to be interrelated. And there have been some wonderful examples and some terrible ones. But it's got some really lovely linked structural devices. Yeah, and it's really quite good. And it's good at leading, leading you down a fairly dark path before, uh, before the reveal that essentially a lot of people are being twisted and the, the overall story comes out much. Oddly, I found it Clearer. more disturbing in that. Mm. But so you've got the in I think it's issue four of of um, Decalogue. You've got the um, one member of the support group uh, is the wife of a disgraced villain, not quite a super villain, just a, a grubby little bastard, a, a mass murderer who killed and who I don't know. I don't think it says sexually assaulted. I think just murdered a lot of women. Yeah. Um, but, but that it's ambivalent and it's pretty fucking unpleasant anyway um, so there's there's the wife of the imprisoned villain character and someone else in the room who turns out to be his last but survived victim yeah and um, also someone who is related to that case who as a function of being related to it her daughter ended up cutting her own eyes out and killing herself and that's supposed to be or it's the the, the the book's structured like the punch is the revelation about the daughter, but it's massively, I found this massively more harrowing and massively harder to read, massively more emotionally affecting. When the surviving victim is just yelling at the wife. Yeah. Just absolutely, they, it's, they're playing trauma top trumps in a public space, and just, she's 
screaming at her and it's all of this horrifying rage and that the wife character who's clearly had a shitty time as well just doesn't know what to do with it incredibly fraught tense set of moments there's no spandex here no one's about to jump off a building Daredevil isn't even really he's he's very much in the background of this story he's he's there by inference it's um, it's a really nice piece of storytelling it's a really nice piece of character work and in as much as the Hell's Kitchen setting is small this is even smaller the entire thing plays out on ten plastic chairs in a basement yeah yeah it's a bottle episode Mm. Um, I would love to see it really negotiates I would love to see them do it in the show you know if it made it to five seasons I would like to see it at the end. It negotiates beautifully the presence-absence thing as well. I mean, you get that inherently with a secret identity, but... I think the point the point at which it's set, the secret identity is almost completely dissolved. That's fun, though, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. kind of... It's completely... It's, it's public okay, denials that allow him, allow him to operate, but... But it's not maintained as a secret identity. But, but that's that's beautiful because it goes to the core of one of the things that's going on with Daredevil or well, with anything that's about the law, really. Um, so he is Daredevil. We, as the readers, have the narratological privilege of knowing that Matt Murdock is Daredevil. And throughout most of the run, that is that is our ironic privilege. That is our ironic advantage as the reader. It's it's the style of who done it where you know who done it and you watch everything unfold. And then his cover gets blown by Silk, and the FBI douchebag whose name I can't remember. Yeah. In what's that run called? It's 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 the Big Bender story that comes after Wake Up. Uh, yeah, I can't remember what that run's called, but it's in the first uh, first volume of the collected Bender Daredevil. Yeah, it's in in that in the big collection. It's it's right after Wake Up, and so Silk's little dickhead plan and the. He's just a, he's a complete non-entity yeah. gangster who thinks he can be, he thinks he can run everything. And his, his asshole 90s sunglasses are the only splash of colour in any panel he's in. Yeah. It's wonderfully telegraphed that he's a little dick end. It's also um, one of those comics where the sort of, the slightly more sympathetic kingpin comes to the fore. Yeah. Um, and first of all, it's in the sense that he's the man that could actually do all of this. And that pretenders like Silgar despite some temporary victories, just just not up to the task. Mm. Um, and, you know, if it wasn't someone with the will and, and ability mm. of Kingpin, they would have succumbed to, you know, mm. the pressures of the good guys a long time ago. They wouldn't have maintained the equilibrium. Yeah. So, at the end of, at the end of that run, Daredevil gets outed in the, in the press. And that creates this fascinating tension where it's not proven. So it, everybody knows, but it's not official. And so there's this wonderful tension where it has very real legal consequences because if it becomes true, and I'll, I'll come back to this, then there are huge judicial consequences for Matt Murdock and for Daredevil. Um, everyone, everyone he's tried, his trials would be under scrutiny, potentially everyone would be released. It's kind of a, an apocalyptic event for the sort of justice dynamic. But it is true. But it isn't true because it isn't recognised. And it brings to the forefront this entire tension dynamic of what law is and what a kind of performative utterance is and what it is that Murdoch does with law that 
Daredevil does with the thing that law regulates, arguably a bit, depending on how you look at it, which is excise some slightly different options on a monopoly on violence. Um, like one conception, I think it was Weber, but one, one, one conception of a, of a state is kind of a consolidated monopoly on violence. Civilized society controls this, yada, yada, yada. Justice puts, or legal systems at least, put strong boundaries on it. Daredevil excises extra judicial violence, this, this, in the context, quasi-supernatural projection of power that Murdoch can't, and there's a massive tension between those things. But the, the entire there's back a, There's end... a wonderful moment in one of the comics, which is sort of throwaway, um, but there's a sort of rookie cop on his first mm. first trip out. He tries to bust him. Yeah, and um, there's just the older cop just sitting there saying, what the fuck are you doing? Um, everything would fall apart if he wasn't there. We just ignore it. It's very, it's sort of very much like the um, acceptance of Mister Knight, the concerned yes, citizen I in the Moon Knight run, which Warren Ellis is Moon Knight, where the task force set out to take him down are working with Mister Knight, concerned citizen, um, which is just one. Have you read Merlisa's Blood in the Mist? No, but I've read Moon Knight. Right. So it, it's very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Slightly different shaped uh, billy club, but other than that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in in that, it's it's a it's an early twentieth century. She spelled conchu differently as well. Mm. Sorry, it's it's an early twentieth century fantasy novel, and one of the protagonists is a town magistrate, and the town that they live in, Blood in the Mist, is completely in denial about the existence of magic because it's poisonous and corrupting and various things and it's become powerfully taboo the fairy realm has become powerfully taboo and they have laws about it and he ruminates constantly on the fact that in their legislature and their utterances they cannot make it exist but they have to make a world where everyone behaves as though it did not and therefore re-implement magic as the law and that kind of distortion of reality and weird, mad tension is just absolutely delightful about some of the bits of Daredevil. It creates a very, very elastic template within which to work. Marilis would have said plastic. That was one of her favourite uh, Plastic favorite is a good words. word. I mean, plastic is... Plastic in the scientific sense is not mm. how we tend to view the word. We tend to view it as being rigid and solid, whereas, whereas it, it means malleable. And in the early 20th century, it... Yeah. Um, there, there's a not very long but interesting piece to be written about tropes of plasticity in Merleys, but I do not have the time. Um, Nor would it serve anyone. Make me happy. No, you can just sit and think about it and do whatever it is you do when the lights are off. Masturbate to early 20th century literature, I imagine. Also, I drink. At the same time? You must use a straw. I have very good motor control. That's demonstrably untrue. <laughs> it's completely false. One day we'll just post a gif of your hand shaking. <laughs> you can't. Wind me. Did any of that make sense? Yes. I think what I'm arguing for is something to do with the tension being salient and being and playing into the legal theme. But the the interesting thing for me is Absolutely, that it entertains this situation of paradoxical untruth around his identity. 
so it, it creates a lot of spaces with this tension in probably more than most um, most superhero characters um, I mean most superhero characters uh, most comics in general stay well clear of religion mm. um, whereas Matt Murdock is explicitly Catholic and that is do you know what just once I'd like to see a non-tortured Catholic in pop culture just, just a generally, generally happy. Catholic. A well-adjusted Catholic. I mean, there must be some statistically. There must somewhere. Yeah, but you're just gonna get so many priestly uh, exposition scenes, and the TV show does it. It's good, although like mass media Catholicism is great for portentous. Nothing does portentous like mass media Catholicism. I mean, it's, it's the only well-adjusted mass media Catholic, Father Dougal. Possibly, but Father Dougal is is not necessarily that. Right, I'd, I'd argue everyone in Father Ted is to a certain extent. They're all, they're all mad, but they're kind of broadly happy, even if they're trying to outreach their grasp. Anyway, Father Ted is not the, not where we're going with this. This is not the um, Ted cast. Yeah, so I mean, so some people were critical of of the confession booth exposition, which yeah, it's a cliche. It it is, but if you want to see Catholicism done badly, the House of Cards, the most recent season of that, just had. The, the slightly demonic lead character standing in front of a, uh, a crucifix which comes tearing off the wall down next to him and is just grimly portentous <laughs> in all the most cliched ways. So you have, the, yeah, you have the tension between him being a religious man and being not only a person who dresses as the actual literal fucking devil and beats people up, um, but he's also a serial knobber. Um, Mm. He would, so he has Dude Fox. a really I think partly this is just because he's been written by several kind of misogynists but he's a, he's a womanizer and there's a, there's a tension between his selfish desire for relationships which comes from the absence of his mother um, because Frank Miller well it was always there she was, she was missing he was raised by his father who was a boxer um, from his father, he gets so moral he, code that his father was completely unable to follow through with. In the mainstream continuity, is this like magic absent where she turns up later with superpowers, or is this totally absent, never appears? If you think nuns have superpowers, then oh, yes. God. So I said, to, I said to you earlier that they're, they're sort of in in um, Man Without Fear, the sort of recapping hmm. origin story of Daredevil. There are three significant uh, women. In, in Matt's life. It's not going to be Maiden, Mother and Crone, is it? It's not. It's uh, it's basically Madonna Whore and Murderous Assassin. Um, so there's, there's Electra. <laughs> that other great triumvirate. There's, there's Electra who... Actual Madonna and Whore. There's, there's, there's a nun and a, a nun. And a His mother is a nun. She ran off to join the church because of reasons, which come out later and are sort of right. important. Um... Because she was sort of a social champion and also wanted to be in, be away for his own good. Also, at one point in Born Again, not sorry, not in Born Again, in um, Man Without Fear, which I choose to basically ignore, he accidentally kills a prostitute. So Frank Miller's Madonna Whore complex writ large there. There are three characters, one of them's a nun, one of them's a prostitute. You asked what's wrong with Frank Miller? Ta-da. Everything's wrong with Frank Miller. Yes. So you have the t- you have the tension between yeah, yeah, yeah. craving relationships and also wanting to keep people safe. 
Um, you have the tension between law and the point beyond it. Um, and you, you have... And also the mirror image, which is the organised and disorganised crime. The kingpin's world versus the non-kingpin world. Um, effectively, corporatized crime versus chaotic crime. And there is some slightly fudgy... But I think it was more sympathetic, certainly for large parts of the TV series, than it ever has been in the comics, but they do not... Um, they do not uh, keep away from that, certainly in the more recent comics, where the kingpin represents something knowable, something contained, um, something that, you know, it uses violence, uses drugs, uses whatever. But it's impressive they got away with it as well. It's an action drama about a lawyer who doesn't like gentrification. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, I, one of the things I thought was really clever about the series was that they used the whole... Everything got destroyed using the, in, during the Avengers to reset Hell's Kitchen to be a more chaotic and grubbier place than it is in it's the real world. It's also classic Naomi Klein disaster capitalism, which they yeah. didn't ever quite explicitly call out, but that is exactly what it, it is. And they're doing it is it. a pure exercise in disaster capitalism. And they're, and they're doing it through legitimate means for the most yeah. part. And then that, that tension rides through, so... And it's full of these dualities of identity. He, he is and is not Daredevil and is obliged to absolutely declare it. He is there's Daredevil. A lovely, there's a lovely bit where Ben Urich, who, you know, due to legal, legal reasons, Ben Urich doesn't work for the Daily Bugle in the TV show, but he mm-hmm. works at the same newspaper as Peter Parker. Yeah. And they just have a nice bit where they both say, oh, you know, you know as well. Yeah, thank God. Now what are we going to do about this? Mm. Um, which is just... You know, I enjoyed that. Really nice. Just as co-workers, what are we doing here? Yeah, I, I also enjoyed seeing Peter Parker. The, the idea that he, he actually must have these off days and actually have to do his fucking day job sometimes kind of pleased me. Um, no, it's... It, so there's something, something I said to you a while ago. Yesterday morning. Um, was... You've taken the best years of my life. No, no, you normally say that to me. Um was um, that you could just about string out a thesis, but you would be bullshitting it and selectively admitting quite hard, but you could just about string out a thesis that Daredevil is unusual, and this is absolutely true on the TV, but way less in the book, um, that is unusual in that the character's day job, that Matt Murdock is more interesting than Daredevil. I'm just going to, yeah, wait. Daredevil is a big splash of colour against a dark background that does some stuff, and Matt Murdock has an interesting and complex life where even if he were not Daredevil, he could and would be making a significant difference. Um, yeah. And so you look at something like Arrow, and one of the things going on with that is that Oliver has decided that he can't make a difference and so has to put on the mask of the dumb playboy. You get a little bit of the um, David Carradine at the end of Kill Bill Superman argument there with Oliver Queen. Um, yes. The, I mean, the, the persona of Oliver Queen is a reflection on the hideous socialites he lives among and actually the arrow is his... Yeah. But, that's, I mean, that, that's partly because, partly because it's a Batman analogue and they would much rather have been making a Batman show than a Green Arrow show. I'm really glad they didn't. It gave um, them enough of a clean slate to not fuck it up. Yeah, this is very true. 
Um, but it's also that there, there is. You, you couldn't really have cast Stephen Amell as Batman, and I'm so glad they. Slightly darker hair, you'd probably have been fine. You've gone into a referee, haven't you? I have. Um, but also, there's. They there's, know their audience. There's the transformative event. There's, there's essentially. There's, there's a period where he has disappeared, and it's effectively a rebirth, which means that the former identity is therefore. Not real, even if he must pretend that it is. Yeah, it's also it's also longer and more explorative, and therefore more plausible and more interesting. So one of the things, the thing I love about Arrow that is a bit glib and on the nose, but I do love it is the two is the constant competing timelines. Like Bruce has spent his Daredevil did that a lot as well. Yeah, has spent his entire life, and sure, it's a big trauma, pissing and whining about the fact that his parents got shot. This is terrible. It's a genuinely terrible thing. I do not wish to diminish that. If your parents were shot by a horrifying pantomime villain, you know, I feel bad for you. But... you got 99 problems, but... No. It's just, they've, they've just... Batman hangs so much off this one event that it begins to lose psychiatric plausibility for me. Whereas the long transformative period that you can then evaluate side by side, it's, it gives you a lot more interesting storytelling stuff to do. So it's, it's just one take on it, for example. So in in the original run of DC Comics, Oliver Queen was a very rich man who decided to dress like Robin Hood and shoot people. Then sure, after about comics, 30 years... So there are multiple they, re-implementations. Yeah, after about 30 years they went, hang on, he's Robin Hood but he doesn't do anything for the poor. At which point he became a communist, despite being a multi-multi-millionaire. Um, after which he became fucking broke and was still a communist which in the TV show got re-implemented as as a you know in a much better way because you have the advantage of taking everything and picking the best bits and making it make sense um, as someone who knew that the sort of the high culture crime the the, the, the high society of a city was essentially a festering war of bastards um, and he was specifically taking those people down so it was the same thing he is attacking the um, the wealthy in society on behalf of the poor, but without ever explicitly tying it to a political agenda. Yeah, he's not a particularly effective socialist, but, you know, I'll take what we can get from the American mass media. But it's a way of implementing that that makes sense. Yeah. And it's tied into his personal narrative far more than some sort of um, abstract outside force. Um, that is actually another thing you get in Daredevil a lot. What is justice? Obviously, when you have, you know, the justice, the legal system, which Matt believes in wholeheartedly, and yet every single day he has to go out and beat people up because it doesn't work. Um, the, the movie, which... No! We've not mentioned it no. at this point, which is quite impressive. No. It's, quite, no. it's quite impressive. Um, the movie no. was so stupid... No, we're not talking about I'm, it. I'm disparaging it. The way they handled this was... It started with him in court, completely failing to get someone convicted um, of a crime that he knew he'd done because obviously he can hear someone's heartbeat, he knows they're lying. So then he follows him as Daredevil and throws him under a train. So, what I love about bad movie implementations of a lot of this stuff is that in an effort to condense them, it often totally misses the point. Yes. Not unlike um, a certain Spider-Man that we might have encountered, or Superman in the Dildo movie. Yeah. 
it's just it's astounding that you can look at any of that source material and think I will condense it into an exposition noble goal I will do it this way how do you how do you make that mistake I don't know I genuinely don't know um one advantage that the movie had was that Frank Miller got thrown off the top of a building. Nice. Yeah. I have, I have time for that. One, one of the things I've not really talked about and that we've kind of we've, we've shied away from a bit is, and I, I'm so unqualified to talk about this and so I, I'm going to liberally freight this with apologies, is, is kind of the disability representation stuff. He's blind. So we've, 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 got a, we've got a comic with a blind protagonist, isn't that great? Well, is it? I have no idea. Because it's, it does that whole pastiche pantomime version of sensors compensating to the point of superpower. So his inability to see becomes parlayed into, becomes parlayed into the way in which he's magic. And I just kind of... I don't know what to make of it. I just don't. So it's odd because he's so, not—he's he's not blind for any functional purpose, and yet he is blind in quite a lot of ways. And it's just—it's—it's—it's kind of—it's—it's a very odd one the way it does it. They use the radiation excuse. So he's hit by radioactive goo. So it's magic science goo, it blinds which means him. that he's super yeah. sensory. He can't see. Yes, but everything else compensates. But he can perceive. So yeah. he, he is blind, but he's not disadvantaged he by it. In fact, he's advantaged by it. He's, so he has, yeah, everything else compensates to an insane degree, which is why he's capable of doing things that he's capable of doing. Again, the, but the, it's, the, not, it's not completely, it's not brilliant. So, you know, loud noises are far more disorientating than yeah. anything else. People can block it out in certain ways. And, and Matt Murdock uses it to cheat at trials. Yes. So Matt Murdock lives as some kind of... Again, I don't really know what I'm talking about here, and massive apologies. Matt Murdock lives as some kind of mediaized version of a blind man. But it's partly a costume he wears. But he uses his hypersensory status to cheat and trials by listening to people's heartbeats. I don't, I don't, think, it's, and I don't think it's in the same sort of sense as the... Um... Batman is the character, Bruce Wayne is the mask. I think he is both Matt Murdock and Daredevil in a way that yeah, you don't get sure. with with some of the sort of more strict um, characters where there isn't really oh, a dichotomy that's just a useful... Especially in the later versions where everyone knows he's Daredevil, but the magic of performative language requires that we entertain the duality. Yes. Um, no, I'm trying to force a point there, and I probably shouldn't. It's, one, thing, one thing I did find interesting there very much about the TV series... Um, I'm stealing your point because this is something you said over lunch, but is the thing about screen reading. We work in the same building. It's not like we just dine out and then do podcasts. I do want that on record. We do occasionally dine out and we do also do podcasts. That's, that's true, but it's not like we just sort of, we haven't been fannying about all day talking about Daredevil is what, is what I want to yeah. stress here. We this have... isn't the edited highlights of one horrifying afternoon. Sorry, please continue with my, oh, one, my wonderful point. Whatever well, it was. I was hoping to like do the mumbly lead-in and let you finish. I can't remember that. That was like six hours ago. I have no idea what I was talking about. Um, in When the comic book version can feel ink on the page, he is more enabled oh, than yes. when um, he requires people to read from the screen of his smartphone. Yes. Yeah, and that's something that shifted in the sort of ten or so years from when I was really, really reading it a lot. Um, 
his his sort of senses compensate the point yeah that he can read raised ink on page so he can read normal newspaper as though he was reading braille um but he really struggles with screens and so in the tv show he did actually feel more disadvantaged than in a lot of the um in a lot of the comics yeah um is that good is it bad is it representation is it not i honestly have, have no idea I felt like the TV show, insofar as I understand any of this, did a better job of casting it as representation than the comics that I have read. Um, it's earlier days as well. He's sort of in in the comics you'll have read. He's he's quite an experienced character already, and he's already mm-hmm. far more capable than the TV version, possibly because of cost reasons. He's not going to go swinging around between mm-hmm. buildings on mm-hmm. Billy Club. He walks. Um, yeah. I mean, he does parkour because who doesn't these days? I've done it three times today. You didn't even notice. You, no, you no. thought you were you thought you were going to a vending machine. One thing I want to I want to do is, is get down some sort of recommendations for if you came from the show and you wanted to read some Daredevil, where should you go? Um, the first thing I would sort of strongly recommend, as it's what I always recommend, is the the complete Bendis run, um, which is available as three chunky. Uh, paperbacks at the moment. They're like 200 pages each. They're fucking huge. Yeah. It's not a lot of money, but... No, I mean, he wrote it for almost a decade, so... For the amount of comic you get in each one of those books, they're not expensive. They're printed on freaking toilet paper, but... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really love those stories. So the stories that we've sort of focused on, like Wake Up, like Decalogue, are Pretty much those... everything we've talked about in any detail is yours for, what, three times 15 quid? Yeah, around that. Um, they're good. They are... A lot of the show comes from them. Yeah. Um, and they are really quite decent. If Bendis annoys you, and goodness knows there's space for that, it's still worth a little bit of a look, but, you know, I think it's. I, I, I think it's less, less dialogue-heavy and less deliberately flippant and smart than some of this other stuff. Yeah, it's it's more like, like it's more like so it's closer loved, to Powers than it is to Spider-Man. Interesting. I was going to describe that differently. I mean, I was going to describe Powers as what might annoy you. With Spider-Man, you expect the glibness, and he dials it up to eleven. With Powers, Powers is just quite. I, I love Powers. I, I really do. I, but I think I probably love the Omings. It, it was Oming, wasn't it? Yeah. I think I probably love Irving's contribution more than I love Bendis's. Powers just feels like it's occasionally quite on the nose, quite quite facilely post-Watchmen. I, I don't know, there's, there's something about it that, although I enjoyed it, I sometimes wonder, isn't it, isn't it maybe a bit cheap? And there's that kind of, hey, here's a trope about superheroes in the modern world. It, 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 Fuck it, right. Look, top ten. Alan Moore knows what he's fucking doing. He's sketching, he's caricaturing, he's collaging, he's pulling together all sorts of weird notes and he's telling all sorts of other stories. And even despite how stupid he knows it is, and he keeps it in quite a stupid register, it still manages to be more plausibly human and more intricate than I think Powers manages in like three times the length with a much cleaner slate. And they're basically the same thing. But his Daredevil's fine. Yes. Um, and where I was going, sorry. Yes. Um, 
There's this thing here about writing with constraints, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think there is. Um, and it's weird, because a lot of the stuff... So the, I still love powers. I mean, Marvel circa 2005 was Bendis. When we were selling comics, ten years yeah. ago. So he was writing Daredevil, he was writing Ultimate Spider-Man. I loved Ultimate Spider-Man. Um, he was writing New Avengers. He was writing... Because I cared less about that at the time. No, no, I mean, it wasn't great. Um, he was writing tons of stuff, but the street-level stuff that he did, like Daredevil, like Alias, which is also... Oh, fuck, I forgot about that. Which is being... It's wasn't the, that terrible? No. I heard it was terrible. No. No, it was great fun. Hmm. Um, it's it's uh, so I shouldn't launch from it was great fun into it's a trauma survival narrative, but it's um, it's another street level thing about this character Jessica Jones who is mm. was a teen superhero went through a traumatic event and does, and quit being a superhero but basically became a detective for superpowered. Types and Didn't around superpowered cases. It had very painty. It was again. It was Alex Malieve. But in a different idiom. It, some of it happened in daytime, which I think is the difference. Mm. Um, Christ, did Marvel just have two employees? Were they doing so badly in the early 90s that they just had two I- Alias came first. Um, but that's going to be the next Marvel show. Alias I Jessica mean, Jones is going to be the next show. Right. Fuck knows. You come out of the 80s, life will kill your business with all those pouches you can afford. No, sorry. That's the next And it was Netflix. good. And it was good. It was. Is Netflix doing a coherent Marvel universe with these? They're all part of the same one. So it's part of the MCU. It's yes. part of... So. Yeah. This is basically what's going on in the slightly grubby corner of New York while everyone else is fighting aliens and giant robots. I think I like that. Yeah, I mean, that's how it is in the comics. I've, I've, I've always preferred street level, but... So Alias is a good one of those. Mm. And I think it's partly the constraint of having genre characters. And I think to the extent it's, it's the freedom of not having to do the big events, to be able to treat them as a story with a start and an end. Mm. Even though someone else is going to take over... They're less. They feel less beholden to the schedule. They feel less beholden to continuity to an extent. I um, used to watch a lot of anime, and I used to very naively, very defensively think that one of the things that your sort of your standard twenty-six episode anime series had over your equally genre American genre show what anyway um, was well it's it's written with an end in mind it's coherently arced it's not aiming for syndication if it it, it it doesn't need to not get canned it's telling a story and it's over there's a shit ton of anime that rolls on and on and on I was rocking some there's a lot of it you, you're I had some of... observation bias I had some crazy observation selection bias sorry some insane yeah, selection you're bias you're making an argument for the coherence of Cowboy Bebop so congratulations on that you're probably the first person ever to do so it actually is coherent oh, there we go I it's knew cool. I could bait you I knew you'd love the delicious taste of bait <sighs> come on you've seen it I haven't I've heard the soundtrack and I know there's a the soundtrack is great Yoko Kano and the seatbelts. No, the um, 
It actually is completely coherent. Uh, <laughs> but the character arcs are coherent. The main plot is a little bit of a mess, but it's semi-coherent. Look, fuck it. Now, fuck you! I was completely wrong about this because I was indulging in grotesque selection bias, but what it did surface is something I like, which is writing for narrative coherence rather than endless serialization. And yeah. this is what I don't like about mainstream... This is why I stopped reading main continuity big comics. It's why I got very disappointed with... I loved Marvel Ultimate stuff for two to three years, and then it just... As it accreted more continuity bullshit and as it became more of an endless churn, just abandoned it. This it accreted continuity pretty fucking fast, and it accreted continuity in relation to the mainstream Marvel Universe because a lot of it was cast as a counterpoint or a different take that only made sense if you understood the original. Yeah, and then it stopped making sense. So, like... Yeah, well, I, I they love, let, I they let the Jeff Loeb write it. That's going to happen. So they compartmentalized stuff brilliantly. They had the mad science was concentrated in Fantastic Four, and you, you, they, they had punching the, things was in the Ultimates, and that they had various bits of compartment. And in the X Men, Ultimate X Men was my preferred X Men, and they massively simplified the continuity and they rolled it out beautifully. And even things like they did a really good version of Mister Sinister, and Apocalypse was the tailor's shop dummy that talked to him because he was crazy. Uh, and that that you know that put that to bed in such a nice way. And even if you didn't know the mainstream continuity, it still worked. It was one of those nods to the audience that work if you don't get it. Yes. Well, then a new Doctor Who's quite good at that um, these days. But um, then it just doubled down on doing it anyway. Oh, I got pissed off with Ultimate X Men. I got so pissed off with Ultimate X Men. It's okay. It finishes this month. Fuck! Is it still? Wow, no, I thought that was good news to you. The Ultimate Universe is being finished this month. No, I just I hadn't realised it had made ten years. Yeah. I thought it I thought it stopped like two, three years ago. Bendis is still writing Spider Man. But he started writing Ultimate Spider Man in two thousand six. Two thousand three, I think, was when the Ultimate Universe started. Cocking no. Maybe right. earlier. Um We have drifted, also you've sullied my dreams. Yeah. Um it's all being folded into one this month it's all being pushed back right let's wrap up with the things so, that people should read you should read Bendis Bendis you shouldn't read Frank Miller under any circumstances ever no, you I'm, should I'm, I'm right probably read some of the Frank really? Miller really is any of it good so quickly, quickly Dave why is it good it's got the Frank Miller caveat but it's a good summation of where the characters come from and the stuff that Frank Miller added he rolled back in quite neatly in Man Without Fear um, Man Without Fear is very early John Romita Jr. as well so it's sort of recognisable style and some lovely art in it um, Daredevil Born Again with David Mazzucchelli mm-hmm. um, gotta love Mazzucchelli he did Batman Year One and Asterius Polyp I don't fucking love Asterius Polyp um, and that addresses some of the Karen Page stuff and some of his some of the stuff around the religion um, you could read all of the stuff that he did with Klaus Janssen if you want to get an idea of where modern Daredevil comes from, but it's by no means essential. Some of it's quite bad, particularly in the early days. Um, if you were going to do that, I would highly recommend a Marvel Unlimited account uh, rather than getting all of the trades, because I'm not sure I could wholeheartedly recommend that. Um, and it's probably worth reading the spin-off Electra comics that... Um, he did with Bill Sinkovich 
because Belsinkovich is a great artist. And most Electroconics not just going to have such bad gender politics. There's a lot, of, a lot of thongy, thongy stuff in there, but Belsinkovich is just fantastic. He really so is. how well do you want your problematic ass crack drawn? Yeah. Um, and I really like the Margway stuff. I do. Which I've you not should, the, 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 Ed, the Ed, Ed Brubaker stuff is very good as well. Um, but the Ed Brubaker stuff is more of a direct continuation of Bendis. The Mark Wade stuff is a, is a clean break. Um, basically, Matt Murdock decides to cheer the fuck up. <laughs> that's, the, that, that's the start of the run. He, he decides to cheer the fuck up. It does just some different things to the character. Not everyone might like it, but I think it's worth reading. Um, and it's got Doctor Doom in it. Really? And I do love Doctor Doom. I do, but he's part of that thing that I was ranting about earlier of the elaborate, overworked continuity that I don't like it when it intrudes. Yeah. No, that, that's fair, but Doom turns up and yells about Doom in the third person and why you should fear Doom, and it's really great. There's a wonderful moment I just, of... Um, I, I can't... I, in Fantastic Four, sure, in Spider-Man, sure, in something that feels like that's its world, but... This is why I didn't like the ninjas being magic in Decalogue, it's just... No, it has bits where he has to go to Latveria to fight Doom, he has to go to Wakanda, where Black Panther's from because of reasons. It does some other stuff, but it's, um... His mother's a nun, she's fighting against international development in certain ways. It gets involved in that stuff, and in ways that make sense. I'm gonna re- I'm gonna say a couple of things that no one should read as well, particularly if you just if if you absolutely have to read every last bit of Daredevil, and I don't think we're gonna have convinced you of that with this podcast. If anything, it's a it's a a character that is worth following when the writers you like and the artists you like are on it, and maybe not so much other times. Don't read any of the Kevin Smith stuff. For I heard it was terrible. For the love of God, don't read the Kevin Smith stuff. Is it really, really bad? It's not good. He's got a run called Guardian Devil, which isn't good. Don't That's read it. That's a terrible it. title. Yeah. Yeah. Also, he's not very good. And don't read Shadowland by Andy Diggle. Shadowland is terrible. Don't read Shadowland. I'll try not to. Yeah. If I, if I slip and read some Shadowland, do I need to consult a physician? I will beat you to death with an old shoe. Okay. It's fine. I'll know. I've um, seen the state of your old shoes. It'll take you a while. I've got an old shoe upstairs right now. I will go and get one and I will beat you with it and then you can see exactly how badly I can beat you with an old shoe.